This is ASEN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asen.ac.uk. research on unionism in Northern Ireland, I'll begin with a biographical question. You have, you have a Protestant background from South Down, which is a relatively Catholic part of Northern Ireland, um, and there have been disturbances there since the 50s, such as the Longstone Road Parade controversy. Uh, it's interesting that another scholar of nationalism or consociationalism is John McGarry, who has a Catholic background from a heavily Protestant part of Northern Ireland, Balamina. Is there any connection between being sort of a local minority uh, and having an interest in nationalism, a biographical connection at all. Yes. Well, it's, it's certainly interesting, probably. I mean, I was, uh, I was brought up uh, so, uh, as a Presbyterian in, in Warren Point, County Down. Right. Um, but my parents were, uh, I think they were probably, uh, they, were, they were liberals, um, and probably in the current context, uh, alliance people. Right. Um, and I'm like David Trimble. Here. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, well, well, actually, I, I went to school with Daphne Daphne right. uh, Daphne Orr, who was, uh, of course, uh, right. uh, Trimble's. Uh, she was in my class, or no, maybe in my brother's class. But uh, uh, no, I, I wasn't terribly aware of any sectarianism. I think one realised there were two separate worlds. But uh, many of my father's close friends uh, were were Catholics, and we we, we were brought up in a mixed uh, mixed housing estate. Uh, no, at the age of ten, my my parents moved to Scotland, um, in part, I think, so that uh, we could escape a kind of sectarian. Uh, my brother and I would escape a kind of sectarian future, and it's there in Scotland, the west coast of Scotland, that I became aware that I was Irish. Was everyone told that I was uh, I was Irish? But uh, at that stage, I was probably anti-nationalist since I couldn't I couldn't understand my <laughs> Scottish uh, friends or didn't uh, particularly uh, like the the west coast of Scotland. Um, and uh, but I became uh, I mean I was there I went to university at Edinburgh. But uh, in my when I was fourteen fifteen, I became interested in Irish literature. Um, people like Joyce and Yeats, um, mainly so in my uh, critics of nationalism at one level, or critics of the kind of orthodox, religious and political orthodoxies. And, but at Edinburgh University I did history, but I didn't study Irish history at all either. Um, I, uh, except in my final year, uh, I was uh, taught by Owen Dudley Edwards, I was taught Irish-American history. But um, it was then, I think at that stage, I thought I would be quite interested in doing a PhD on, on Ireland. Uh, and. Uh, Probably because of this kind of Scottish-Irish um, sort of kind of dual uh, sort of uh, sense of being oh. product of, of, of both, and uh, but uh, within a couple of years of my starting the PhD, I, I got a job in Australia, so I was then uh, a sort of doubly distanced from Ireland, and it was really at the uh, after a number of teaching a you number know, of years in Australia, I decided I want to go ahead with a PhD on Irish cultural okay. nationalism. And then, um, well, I, the dynamics of cultural nationalism, which is your first book, grew out of the thesis. Mm. And uh, what about, well, 
what then drew you to specifically to nationalism, or did you just were you just interested in Ireland? Uh, well, I, I think I, I was interested in, in in Ireland, but particularly the cultural revival, uh, Yeats, uh, Joyce, uh, Singh, uh, and uh, as I said, at that probably at that point I was anti-nationalist. Uh, um, but I, I had a quite a corpus of materials together in Australia, but I didn't really know what to do with them. I didn't have that kind of framework. And I read, uh, I read Anthony Smith's uh, book, Theories of Nationalism, and his final chapter when he's talking about the dual legitimation thesis. And he's talking about the uh, uh, nationalism forms uh, through the interaction of uh, reformists and modernists. And I, I could suddenly see a way in which that made enormous sense of trying to explain how uh, an Irish cultural nationalism began to crystallise. And uh, at that point, I, I wrote, wrote to him, asked him if, uh, if I could study with him. At, uh, uh, and, uh, and he also called out in his book uh, for kind of interdisciplinary research uh, to uh, sort of to test some of the more general theses in nationalism. And I thought this is ideal. Uh, ideal opportunity. So I, I wrote to him, he was in Reading. Um, I was all prepared to leave uh, Brisbane and Australia for, for Reading and then suddenly at the last moment I discovered he was he had moved to the other sea so I had to rapidly shift to the other sea. Not uh, a bad move. Though. No, not, not a bad move at all. No. So that's, that's, that's how I, I came to be studying and that and of course the book developed out of the, out of the thesis. Okay, so, and, and do you want to tell us a little bit about the thesis of the book? Yes, well, I suppose I was, uh, I, I was, as I say, interested in the, in the role of these romantic intellectuals, uh, artists, poets, also historians, and, and, uh, and their role in the formation of national identities, which seem to be uh, quite important one to see the trace in Ireland. Um, uh, understand what, how this came about, um, and also the circumstances under which these ide identities, which were often uh, sort of generated by only a tiny minority of people in a, in a kind of mo in their modern uh, forms, how uh, the circumstances under which these identities became politically salient, um, and then so here one sees the interaction of the kind of uh, the reformers revivalist model of Smith. Under what circumstances do historic intellectuals look back to the past and try to construct a national identity? And also the the modernists, under what uh, circumstances do people like journalists and so forth try to translate these uh, sometimes rather academic ideas or rather rarefied ideas into concrete social and political programs? And so on the one hand, I was looking at uh, Smith's dual legitimation thesis. To understand the origins of intellectual uh, of, the, of the intellectuals and their attraction to nationalism, and on the other hand, I was looking at a what you might call a more block mobility thesis, uh, which has its roots in Weber and Gellner as well as Smith, to understand the circumstances under which these ideas will be translated into economic and social programs, and and which uh, a sizable social constituency will develop around these. Uh, a kind of frustrated intelligentsia. Okay. And so uh, I, I was originally going to look at uh, simply the 19th century, the Gaelic revival, but then it became clear when I was actually tracing the origins of national identities, uh, this was only the at least the third revival of a whole series. And so 
uh, I, I sort of started chartering, uh, charting this from the 18th century onwards and the, uh, the development of the early institutions uh, around which the historicist projects developed. And uh, then I could see that there were patterns in which these ideas were being taken up by intellectuals and certain pattern, certain periods in which they were or were not being att uh, att attracting a constituency and then was able to draw the empirical evidence to try and test out the hypothesis. Okay, well that's, yeah, I mean it's uh, definitely an, an interesting book and at the time were you aware that, you know, you, between you and Anthony Smith and maybe the odd other, you were very much in a minority camp in a way, I mean were you aware that somehow you were going against the grain of yeah, the, the majority of scholarship. Well, it's going against the grain, and the this is starting in 1980, and the majority of the scholarship that saw nationalism as um, really quite a, either an ephemeral uh, uh, phenomenon, uh, which has waned in Western Europe, might be still alive and kicking in, in former colonies, but uh, would sooner or later just. Uh, fade away as these societies matured. Um, so uh, in the sociology department too, it was looked at as rather, rather odd. And also <laughs> there's a kind of anti-culturalist bias in sociology at that point, uh, that uh, ideas must be every, every phenomenon of material forces. So uh, it, w it, it, it was very much a, um, a minority thing. And of course at the see there are two other people, or two other major figures in nationalism, perhaps three, uh, including Kenneth Mayo, but Gellner and uh, Ili Kuduri. Um, and good, uh, Gellner was clearly hostile to a kind of emphasis, uh, to uh, any, any study that privileged uh, the, the role of culture. Um, and Kuduri was hostile to the idea of, of nationalism as having <laughs> any kind of society forming uh, possibilities. Um, so, it, yes, one did feel that the one was in a bit of a minority at that stage. Right. Um, and, and even in the literature, I mean, that had come out in the early 80s. Yeah, there actually wasn't all that much to go on. Um, so one was drawing, uh, my first year was, uh, because I wasn't a sociologist uh, either, uh, so I, I, Anthony Smith was asking me to read Durkheim and Weber and Schills and Geertz as well as all the kind of empirical work, so it was quite a... Uh, I, I did feel as if my brain was seizing up <laughs> the sheer uh, 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 overload. But there weren't all that many uh, models, almost nothing to, to draw on uh, for that. Uh, me, I was, to some extent, I was drawing on people like Schill's, some of his articles, uh, also influenced by John Pocock's work, um, uh, on tradition and the way that uh, arguments developed for innovation by using tradition. Uh, people like uh, Quentin Skinner too, when he talks about moral innovators and how, how they managed to change the terms uh, of legitimation through certain which pr practices become legitimate, uh, you know, become uh, possible. Um, and I uh, suppose I was using, uh, I was influenced by that in looking at how cultural nationalists constructed the past in a different guise as a way to outflank traditionalists. Uh, and uh, I suppose amongst the concrete scholars, uh, uh, Joseph Levinson's work on China, uh, the Chinese intellectuals, uh, was, uh, was important. 
But yes, there wasn't very much uh, of a model to use. Yeah, the term cultural, the term cultural nationalism, is that your term, or had it been used? Before? No, it had been used before, um, and in fact, there was a study of cultural nationalism in India uh, by an author whose name I can't remember offhand. But uh, yeah, it took a rather different. Uh, it was looking at uh, had a different uh, framework altogether. Um, I think you can find it in Kaduri, but he's really saying it's uh, uh, in its initial forms, in the Herderian forms, there was a cultural nationalism, but in practice it all, all always coalesces with uh, political movements. So in fact, the cultural and the political are the same, and Gellner really took the same uh, same perspective. Okay. Um, um, well, I. Um <coughs> I will confess that we both had the same doctoral supervisor, Anthony Smith, uh, and you were his first doctoral student, but when did you first become aware of Smith's work? Uh, was it when you were in Australia? That's right. In a, yes, in, a, in Australia there were these multiple copies of theories of nationalism, and uh, I suppose I must have just taken a down out of interest uh, and uh, f found, uh, found it there. Um, and as I said, there weren't all that many many other scholars around. Uh, Gellner's work was largely confined to that chapter in Thought and Change at that point, because his book hadn't been written. And there was Kaduri's work as well. But also at the same time as uh, encountering Smith, I there was the Hobsbawm and Ranger book, The Invention of Tradition, yeah. which, uh, which created a certain excitement around the notion of the nation as a, as a cultural production, if you like, uh, uh, and uh, so that uh, that made me interested in, in the way that nations could be formed and uh, could be constructed. Um, the, let me just see now. Well, one thing I guess I get to ask you a little bit about LSE when you first came here, because uh, I mean, when I came in '93, there was this mm. seminar with. Uh, Anthony Smith, Brendan O'Leary, James Mayo, and George Shawlin, which I saw the notice for, and mm. I decided I'd go to that, and then I changed course to study with Anthony. But when you came here, was there some sort of similar gathering of nationalism people in one place? No, no. Uh, I arrived. Uh, I think, uh, as I say, um, I arrived in December, and Anthony had arrived in October, and I think he had. I, I think one of his first actions was to uh, put up a notice about an interdepartmental seminar for the study of nationalism, and that's how it got established with uh, James James Mail um, and Percy Cohen, and uh, George Shoffman came around. But I'm, I can't remember whether it, it's actually started in the in my first year there, or whether it was it, it was it was later, but. Um, um, uh, at, at that point, uh, it was just a, a question of finding who was interested in nationalism, and uh, there, uh, there were there was a, another PhD student, Marion Heiberg, who was a student of uh, Ernest Gellner, who was doing work in the Basques, and uh, a year or so later, there's Kasaku Yoshino, uh, who also was studying nationalism. With uh, Anthony, and his, uh, who's written now is written uh, on also on cultural nationalism. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. And Alexa Gilas uh, oh, okay. uh, was another. But uh, I think we were amongst we were about the, maybe the only three PhD students that I knew of. 
that were studying nationalism. Studying nationalism. Yeah. There might have been a few others in the history yeah. department. I went along to the history department too, but they were right. interested in the subject. And, and what about the sort of ethnic and racial studies crowd? I mean, was there any, or were they completely looking at different issues? Um, um, yeah, I, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't really aware of them. Um, so, yes, uh, at that point, no. Um, so, yes, uh, so the workshop really, really only got going uh, shortly after, I think shortly after I arrived. And right. Um, right, now, just turning to uh, sort of the theory perhaps a little bit more, um, the period since the collapse of the Berlin Wall saw a, a sort of new flood or a large flood of work on nationalism of varying quality. Um, can you name several books that you view as the most important or theoretically innovative of that sort of post-1989 stream? Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's hard. I mean, I don't think um, there hasn't been, um, there's been a great explosion of work on nationalism, uh, but uh, there hasn't been a great um, theoretical explosion, I think, since uh, 19. 89. Many of the seminal texts uh, predated that. Uh, Gellner, Smith, uh, including the Ethnic Origins, um, Armstrong, uh, Hobsbawm, uh, Anderson, Bruley, uh, just try, uh, just write, writing. I think James Mail's to work too. I think uh, predates this, or must have been coming around. Sorry, Horowitz. Yeah. Um, Connor, uh, much of his uh, work had already been established well before then. So since then, it's hard. There are a few people, but uh, uh, like uh, Adrian Hastings and um, perhaps Michael Hector's book um, on um, containing nationalism, Brubaker, uh, Billig, um, Michael Mann. Right. Um, but I don't know that. Uh, the there has been. I mean, have they altered or revolutionised what was already there, or just mainly built on top? I, I think they. Uh, <laughs> I think the man. I think man has made a, a significant contribution. Ma mainly, uh, I think, through his theoretical system, his uh, his, his work on the as were the multiple sources of social power. Um, uh, I think Hastings is uh, a kind of very interesting uh, line of argument uh, uh, insofar he's one of the few who focuses on the religious sources of nationalism, mm -hmm. uh, including the Bible, uh, particularly the Bible. Uh, so I think that's one of the most original uh, developments. And Billig, as banal nationalism, is bring, bringing it down to the... Uh, Away from that, where the hot nationalism, which is usually the focus of theories, to the kind of uh, uh, routinized nationalism. Um, but Billig's work, uh, I think, uh, doesn't really explain all that well the, the, the workings of this routinized nationalism. Um, I think uh, Kosaku Yoshino's work on the consumption of nationalism. I think adds adds elements, new elements to to Billig's work. Insofar he's applying an anthropological approach to the way uh, the, the way that people 
use nationalist assumptions as a way of trying to solve problems such as how to deal with um, uh, how businessmen try to deal with problems of globalization so they they think of well how are we going to train people and uh, through uh, to, to to trade with Americans so they develop these intercultural manuals which create these stereotypes that the Americans are westernizers on the one point and they kind of essentialize Japanese on the other mm -hmm. and so that's a kind of interesting way in which national assumptions get internalized and reproduced but there's uh, I think that I mean uh, there's more work to be done on that uh, but I wouldn't say there's uh, Burbaker's work too is interesting, but again, it's not it's not creating a, a kind of alternative uh, theoretical account of nationalism. Not yet, anyway. It's 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 it's, it's more specific than that. How about Eric Kaufman's work now? Oh well, well <laughs> I'm, I'm excluding uh, <laughs> present company. Uh, that's sort of, uh, um, okay, now I just want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, John Bruley's interview, which is just gone up yes. on age nationalism and uh, he made a few points and I know uh, Oliver Zimmer uh, shares some of these views and mm. I just want to uh, ask you about them. John Bruley made the argument that uh, too many nationalism theorists, and I presume he means by this perennialist uh, theorists, adopt what he calls a pick and mix approach latching on to incidences of nationalist language say in the pre-modern period uh, and taking them out of context and then quote-unquote connecting the dots uh, to trace what seems to be a narrative of pre-modern nationalism. Uh, and he argues, I suppose he argues against this kind of an approach for a sort of more historically immersed approach in the case whereby one would perhaps see all the different nuances, uh, different identities cross-cutting and interacting. I mean, do you think Bruley is right or is there something we can salvage from a different approach? Well, um, I suppose it's a, it's a general approach, a general criticism that people um, uh, select uh, that evidence which most closely fits their approach or theory. And uh, I, I think it's, it's really kind of local version of that kind of criticism. Um, but I mean, that, that, is, that is a potential problem. Um, but equally, there's the problem of um, uh, a kind of over-literalism of saying that, uh, well, either the, 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 the alternative, the, the, another problem is defining nations in such strict terms that the only way they can possibly appear is in the post-18th century period. Um, so no matter what uh, kind of uh, apparent similarities there might be to uh, pre-modern uh, communities. You simply rule it out because they lack something like citizenship or uh, mass participation. Um, there is also the problem with modernists uh, insofar as many clearly don't have much knowledge of the, of, of pre -modern, uh, of the, of the pre-modern period. Even to talk about the pre-modern period in itself is kind of lumping all history before the 18th century uh, and agglomerating. Uh, and uh, in Gellner's work, this is very clear, this is a kind of uh, uh, pre-modern period is, is simply the opposite of the modern period, i.e. it's static, it's localized, it's uh, um, uh, elites are insulated from, from the masses. So 
Obviously, by definition, you can't get a, a nation forming. Right. Um, so many, many modern historians uh, know uh, it's a problem of specialization. Many, many, uh, many, uh, many modernists only know their period, and they simply don't know other periods. And many medievalists, likewise, don't know the modern period. And there's a lack of real communication between the spaces and I think one of the virtues of uh, Oliver Zimmer's book is that he was bringing these people together. Um, That's the book he edited with scales. Yes, Power on the Nation. Yeah. Because even if the term nation isn't being used, if another term is being used, uh, people may be simply employing a different term to mean essentially the same concept. And I think uh, a lot of Reynolds uh, work with regional identities uh, again is trying to uh, try to explore this without the assumptions of anachronism on the one hand but also without the assumptions that the uh, uh, that the, the the modern period must be qualitatively different uh, from the uh, from the sort of the period before the 18th century in other words, there, there is the assumption of this enormous cleft in history, uh, and that uh, there's some sort of qualitative change. Um, and I think people have to look at this empirically to see whether this is the case. Maybe in some cases it will be, in other cases it won't be. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, is that this view that the pre-modern period was sort of static? People had localized identities, which you see in Gellner and Anderson and, and Giddens as well. Mm. I mean, where, where does I mean, how much you don't? What do you view? How do you view that position, and, and where do you think it comes from? That sort of view of the pre-modern. I I think it is a, a it, it it comes from uh, I, I think it, it it comes from well, it's it's to be found in all. Uh, all kinds of intellectual analysis. We've got to focus on what is really distinctive about uh, our problem, um, and we locate it in a particular locale. Um, so we define uh, this uh, situation outside the locale as being, you know, if ours is white, that's black. I think it's just just a question 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 of that. that the assumption is that uh, that nations and nationalism have uh, are a period of the modern period, as undoubtedly they are. They're pervasive, and uh, there's then been the exaggerated uh, contrast to the pre-modern. But because nations and nationalism have haven't proliferated in in the manner in which they clearly have been institutionalized in the modern period, um, then. Uh, then the, there must be sort of qualitative difference. Um, then we must find the uh, the explanation of the rise of nations and nationalism in processes such as industrialization, bureaucratic state, the uh, intellectual revolutions of the Enlightenment. And since they're not there in the in the, in the pre-modern period, they, they can't possibly exist. Uh, instead, we have this static, you know, this. But. Um, uh, I think that this is, has all kinds of problems because there are many areas of commercial, commercial development in the pre-modern period. There are many periods of intellectual enlightenment as well. Uh, um, I, mean, I think, uh, 
and uh, again there's a, a tendency then simply to uh, blot out this as kind of in inconvenient. Yeah. Um. Um, all right. Uh, let's see now. Um, right. Another another point that Bruley uh, makes, and some historians often make, is uh, that you know good history is based on immersing oneself in a case or in a particular situation, uh, and noting all of the conflicting identities that individuals possess and the different pulls they're under and the contingency and, and the uh, many factors that are acting on a situation. And he, his argument, if I read it correctly in the debate, is that uh, uh, those who, who sort of abstract from that uh, and sort of look at, for example, just the statements that use the word nation or ethne or, or sound like they're using that statement mm -hmm. are somehow being aren't being true to the subject, aren't being true to their material. Um, what, what is your view of this? I mean, do you concur with it at all? Or well, I think uh, if you do look at Armstrong's work, or indeed Susan Reynolds' work, I think these are criticisms that can't be made of these, the, these scholars. They do um, identify the, the many different uh, identities and levels of governance and uh, um, and make uh, important distinctions between uh, religious identities, class identities, ethnic <coughs> identities. Um, so I, I don't know. Uh, it may be may be true uh, of of some that uh, they do tend to construct these uh, homogeneous identities and blot out uh, the fact that there are always uh, multiple identities. But this is equally true of the modern period as well. Um, yeah, I think essentially saying that uh, uh, ethnicity is very dilute because uh, class identities uh, or religious identities were predominant and they were they formed only a, a small part of the existence and then people have uh, picked up references to ethnicity without uh, without uh, taking into account that people lived in a, within within the religious cosmology rather than say something in the modern day national commission. That's not really not true. But equally it's it's true of the modern period that people uh, have these multiple identities. Uh, and again uh, the criticism that one can be made of many modernist scholars that they over exaggerate the importance of nationalism in the modern period, failing to take account that nationalism allies with and is in conflict with religious identities, with liberalism, fascism, communism and so forth. And it's the, it is the interaction of, uh, we should be looking at the interaction of the different identities, under what circumstances does one become uh, uh, more significant. Uh, but I, I would say this is a problem for both the, the modern period and the pre-modern period. Right. Uh, I mean, in terms of method, would you say, I mean, Bruley speaks a lot about the historical method about getting immersed into a case. Yes. Would you argue as well for a kind of a more theoretical method? Um, yeah, well, it's, it comes from a training as a historian that, uh, that uh, that's what he feels <coughs> comfortable with. Um, and I suppose, as an historian, um, yeah, I, I understand what he's... Um, uh, I mean, I, for example, Anthony Smith is... Um, uh, I would say he's an historical sociologist, whereas I would see myself as more a sociological historian. 
um, and for for, uh, uh, for 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 Anthony Smith, then quite clearly he is a kind of he's a theoretician in the sense of um, uh, he's clearly in the school of Weber and Durkheim and uh, is interested in constructing frameworks. Uh, although with uh, great attention to empirical uh, empirical uh, uh, particularities. Yeah. Uh, Should I just back up? Okay, I think that's going now. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think. Uh, I mean, I think it's a it's a it's a matter of intellectual temperament more more than else. So, uh, there are. From a re theoretical point of view, you can only study an individual case if you already have some uh, perception of what is important in that case. So you have to have prior criteria of what to look for. Uh, so that uh, theory, in, a, in a, using this term in a relatively loose sense, comes prior to uh, the empirical detail. After all, you can Im immerse yourself forever in the case, at what point you stop? Mm. Um, so, but but given that, obviously there are there are people who are happier starting from one end rather than the other. But both end, both parts of the uh, spectrum have to come together. Uh, the problem with the historian is that once you start with a particular case, it's very difficult to move away from that. You start using that particular case as the norm by which you judge others. Um, and given the fact that uh, uh, most people only have only got uh, a limited language competence and uh, have only got a limited time available to immerse themselves, um, how do you select? How do you select your cases? It's going to be an arbitrary uh, dimension in that in the very first place. Um, so, at some point or other, you have to justify uh, justify your studies. At, at the more general level, right. um, I don't really think it matters where you start as long as you realise there's an interaction between the two, and that uh, if you start off from the theoretical, you have to test your theory constantly by reference to empirical particularities. Equally, if you're starting off the empirical, you have to begin to place your particular study within uh, a more general typology, a framework of uh, of nationalism studies, and modify that. If, uh, if necessary, so as, as I say, I don't, I don't think what the the matter is the starting point. Uh, uh, as long as you realise that is only the starting point. Okay. Um, in terms of well, how, the next question really has to do with this distinction between the ethno symbolist school, which is relatively new, and, and primordialism, since many scholars and probably a lot of people reading this. Uh, do not tend to make a distinction. They just tend to see primordialists on the one hand and constructivists or uh, modernists on the other hand. So how would you distinguish ethno-symbolism then from primordialism? That's, I think that's quite difficult. When it's talking about... Um, well, it's quite... I mean, one, one level... Uh, I'm quite suspicious of these labels because uh, the question is what are you doing with it? The danger is that you assume there is some clear body of people who are primordialist. There's some body of people who are ethno-symbolist and there are a clear body of people who are modernist and so forth. Um, the, 
and that's uh, there's all there's also and that's that's very misleading. Uh, there's also the problem is that many of these terms are loaded, and uh, it's uh, they're often uh, put up as a way of creating straw men to be knocked down because there's hardly any there are very few scholars who would claim or wish to be known as primordialists um, uh, because that implies as it were that uh, you accept the doctrines of nationalism of course there are the you know the different distinctions there are the people the, the, what you can call the, the cultural primordials like Geertz who um, argue that we've got to take actors' perceptions of the uh, sacredness of ethnicity seriously uh, as a way of explaining uh, its uh, capacity to mobilize people. Um, and then there's the, the socio-biological -bio uh, interpretations of uh, uh, Vandenberg as well. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there are uh, I think uh, certainly Anthony Smith has probably constructed this ethno-symbolist uh, uh, label as a way of uh, of differentiating, uh, forcing people to differentiate him from primordialism. Um, I think he himself argued that he was a kind of qualified modernist. In other words, he accepted most of the premises of the mo modernists that nations and nationalism are predominantly a modern phenomenon. However, one had to take into account uh, the impact on uh, of uh, pre-modern sentiments and ties and institutions on the way nations formed and uh, even the, the content of nationalist ideology and also that one could not uh, simply uh, uh, decide uh, uh, by fiat that uh, uh, that there were no, no nations or nationalism uh, before the age of modernity. Um, he himself, I think, has described ethnosymbolism not as a, as a theory but more of a framework of analysis, emphasizing the subjective dimension, the importance of myths and symbols and memories, uh, and uh, the, the role, role of culture. So, focusing very much on the realm of identity. But admitting that these identities do change over time, quite often, quite dramatically, if there are traumatic events like religious reformations or, or indeed warfare, um, so that you can, I mean, so uh, uh, acceptance of ethnosymbolism is quite compatible with an acceptance that identities may change quite fundamentally uh, over time. In other words, there's nothing fixed about national identities. But you see the problem with if you're looking at uh, particular figures like uh, Walker Connor, who appears to be a primordialist in the way he defines nations as, as the largest uh, community who uh, share uh, who share a myth of uh, descent. Um, on, but on the other hand, uh, he argues that nations only come into being uh, really by the late 19th century uh, because uh, the nation must have a mass mass dimension. So um, what does it serve? I, I, either try, trying to chop Walker Connor in two, <laughs> part of them could go into a primordialist camp and part of them go into the modernist. I think the, the problem, the question is what's the problem that we're trying to uh, understand and uh, trying to answer? 
and then these these labels are only useful insofar as they help identify specific uh, threads threads of uh, argument. Right. But I think there is there is too much of this uh, kind of uh, putting people into boxes, which is again missing the point that there, there's a pro there's a problem of some kind to be understood. Um, and the and the, the interesting thing is well, what's uh, what are the terms of the solution? But, but what's interesting, though, is that particularly if you look at um, political science or IR, in the, in, particularly in the United States, there is, it's almost a taken for granted assumption that uh, ethnic identities, national identities are constructed, fluid, malleable. Mm. And to, to go against that is almost, well, it's, it's, it's not very common at all. And I'm just thinking of people like David Layton, for example, or others. Mm. Who've, who've written with this assumption in mind. And what, what's interesting is that while most people out there on the street perhaps view ethnicity as something that is very difficult to change and handed down the content relatively fixed, most scholars of ethnicity and nationalism, especially social scientists, see it as fungible and constructed. So what, what do you think accounts for this divergent interpretation of reality? Are the scholars simply smarter or is it the case of hope against history? Well, I think it's. Uh, I think it is. Uh, it's the Enlightenment um, uh, training of uh, of, scho of scholars. The idea of that we we are uh, uh, fundamentally rational human beings, and uh, that uh, we construct our work, uh, our world. We are not determined by it, and that the the Enlightenment has emancipated us from myth. And from superstition, and uh, from uh, the those oppressive actors who uh, who legitimise themselves through myth and superstition, and I think this has been uh, uh, again transposed into the field of nationalism. As nationalism is quite frequently uh, associated with react reaction, authoritarianism, and again, indeed, one can see all too many cases of that in which. Again, masses are mobilized for uh, very unpleasant uh, uh, goals. And the, the role of the scholar, the critical intellectual, is to try and, as were, take people to the truth, uh, to save people from the passions. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's in, it's in the, again, many historians like James Plum, the, uh, the death of the past. Mm -hmm. uh, again, Emancipation and deconstruction associated with 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 liberty and uh, the uh, attack uh, attack on uh, on authority um, and again part of it may be guilt in some <coughs> respects because historians and uh, perhaps anthropologists have played a role in the construction of national identities and uh, mm. um, so it's the duty of the of the academy as it were to purge itself of its errors um, so I think that's part of it. And part of it, uh, I suppose, too, is the idea that uh, academics have to set themselves up against power, and uh, the nation uh, is institutionalized in this world, uh, in, in the modern world. It's the, it's the primary political unit. Uh, political actors, again, legitimize themselves by reference to the nation, um, often using it uh, quite unscrupulously. So. Uh, Academics are, 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 are showing that these things are malleable, are, are often used instrumentally, right. and, and, and so forth. Uh, so it's a, a process in education. 
But I think one has to distinguish, I mean, the, 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 these good moral emancipatory goals from the actual realities. And the, the problem is that uh, ethnic identities are nothing like as malleable as, uh, as, as these scholars would like. The case. Hence the constant desperate attempt to invent or show the invention of nations. But is, is, is there a da do you see maybe a danger if one views identities as very malleable? I mean, if we think about you know views of conflict situations like former yeah. Yugoslavia or Iraq, yes. the idea of the malle malleability of identity. I mean, do you see that as maybe a dangerous well, it, assumption? It has many. Yes, there's a whole talk about nation building, of course, in the United States when they're talking about really about state building, shows the main confusion. Uh, that uh, by constructing a set of institutions you can uh, just change collective identities and this can lead to uh, all kinds of follies and one saw it in the Soviet Union uh, and, and one also sees it in the case of American foreign policy as well um, and indeed uh, one again one fears in many peacekeeping situations the easy assumptions that uh, you can change ethnic identities just by Tinkering with constitutional machinery, I think, is uh, in the end uh, deluded. Mm. Okay, I mean, let's just move on to the second, your second book, Modern Nationalism. Yeah. And if you want to just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, that yeah. I, well, yes. Wh yeah, what was the context of that? Um, I suppose uh, it was an attempt, as were, to. Uh, uh, move away from Ireland to do something a bit more general and, and theoretical terms, look at a series of debates about, uh, about, about the modernist debate. Uh, uh, I was, so in the book I was looking, uh, I was uh, sort of generalizing and broadening out from the book, looking at the question of how modern were the nations, uh, the extent to which nations were cultural and political. Um, and then looking at some of these debates and trying to apply them to contemporary situations, see whether we could understand some of the challenges to nationalism uh, through the frameworks of these debates, the challenges coming from religious uh, fundamentalism, from communism, from the European Union, and also looking at, as it were, alternatives to the apparently alternatives to the nation and immigrant nations. And I was then involved in doing a study of uh, the Australian Bicentenary as a, as a nation uh, forming uh, event. Uh, so that, that was the context in which I was doing that and, uh, um, and I think, uh, yes, I was particularly interested in the Australian uh, uh, dimension, uh, the way in which what you might call ethno-symbolic frameworks could be applied to immigrant immigrant nations, although ethno-symbolism had been devised at that, at that time. Okay, and, and uh, when you, you moving from that to your recent book, Nations and Zones of Conflict, I mean, what sort of, how did your thinking change then between those two books? Yes, well Anthony Smith uh, described modern nationalism, he said yes, it's not a theoretical book, it's more using theory to look at specific problems. And I thought about that, and so I thought, well, yes, I think there are some interesting theoretical issues uh, to be explored. Uh, and at that time, I was teaching a course on world history and uh, seeing how, uh, well, um, seeing that the sort of pre-modern world was far more dynamic um, 
uh, and, uh, and, and uh, mobile uh, than uh, the, many of the pre-modernists in, in nationalist theory were, uh, were maintaining. And that uh, many identity, ethnic identities got crystallised in the, uh, as John Armstrong argued, uh, in, uh, in the, uh, through conflicts between religious civilizations. Um, and also, I'd encountered, uh, I was reading Mann's book on the sources of social power closely, and it seemed to me there were, within all nations, uh, there, were, there was a great deal more conflict uh, as almost a constitutive element than had been really understood in, mo in, in most, most of the theories. Um, and I suppose, too, I was becoming aware that uh, we do tend to look at nationalism from the producer side, I mean, higher national identities produced by intellectuals or by institutions, but there's been very little on how it's been received. Uh, is it simply absorbed by the masses in a top-down fashion? Well, I, I was very, becoming very sceptical about that, uh, in part because um, there was too much of an emphasis on the kind of homogenizing capacities of the, of the modern state, whereas Mann's work was showing that the state is only one major power network in the world. There's the economy, the role of ideology, and of course the, the role of war and, and the military. So if there wasn't a kind of single institution capable of bearing down on populations which were inside their respective territorial cages, um, it's possible then that conflict might be much more endemic to nations. And the question is, well, if this conflict is so endemic, why, why is it that national identities seem to be uh, uh, growing stronger in the modern period? And uh, so I was trying to explore some of these questions about not taking national identities for granted, that there are conflicts within them, and that also there are periods in which nationalism seemed very strong and also when it seemed to be rather weak, and there was no clear explanation in literature for this, and this was, I suppose, this, the starting point for the book. And, I, and one thing I found quite interesting in the book was this, uh, because quite often in reading some sociologists of modernity and uh, people like Giddens or, or some of the postmodern theorists, they argue that uh, we live in an age when the nation is fragmenting as, as, they, as they see it. Not only the nation, but often older traditional ethnic identities of any kind are fragmenting because of uh, the reduced course of power of the state, because of the sort of expressive possibilities opened up by the 60s um, and, and the general liberal individualism hedonism that's prevailed mm -hmm. since then. Uh, but in opposition to that, you kind of argue, uh, if I read it right, that in fact nationalism can adapt to multiple identities. It doesn't actually fragment. Uh, do you want to say something about that? Well, yes, and indeed I was arguing that uh, in many uh, cases you get the hot nationalism forming uh, in the 19th century those are the sense of, a, of, the, of the, the threat of all these other identities, uh, threat from religion, the, the, again the counter-attack of Catholicism in the 19th century, the role of warfare, there are very few states that, uh, in Europe uh, that were, whose boundaries were not shaped, shaped by war, uh, by migration, a series of migrations too, so uh, the, the notion that the nation is under threat 
uh, was one of the dynamic uh, uh, elements uh, in the formation of nationalism uh, and that uh, once uh, nation states formed and routinized again nationalism would tend to wane until another kind of crisis of migration or war uh, would emerge. I mean, I think it was, it's uh, as, as been pointed out in by many scholars that uh, that the greatest period be before the uh, Second World War, the greatest period of free trade um, and uh, international as were uh, specialization uh, in the world economy occurred before the First World War, which is a period of uh, of heightened nationalism. Um, uh, so that these things go together. So, so again, that was a, another point which I got, which was that various phases of globalization and nationalism yes. have gone together, um, and which in a way, because another argument of some theorists of globalization is that globalization is again eroding the nation state, people like Omai or Archibugi or people like this. So what, what I mean... Yeah, well that, that came out of my uh, world history course, doing that, right? realizing that, uh, I mean, if you're defining globalization as, uh, as a, a sort of uh, a sense of the increased interconnectedness between world populations at a series of levels, then you could say that globalization began very early. Uh, and so there's obviously, a, most globalization theorists were saying globalization is relatively recent, it's a, kind of it's a kind of successor to the process of nationalization. Um, and uh, but I was saying that obviously there's a pr if, you're, if globalization has been uh, going on for about a couple of millennia, then there's obviously a, a, a real problem in arguing then that it must then necessarily uh, lead to the death of nation states. It might uh, indeed might be a causal factor in the, in the origins of, uh, of nation states. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, in fact, you, I think in, in that book said you, you have to have a much more as it were, interactive model whereby global, uh, factors of globalization such as warfare, mass immigration and so forth may be catalysts of ethnogenesis, but equally ethnic actors may also be sponsors of uh, global networks. Um, and, and, and what, but there is a, I mean, one can see, particularly now with the European Union, Losing, particularly since the late '80s, losing force, and with other developments, you can you can easily see the argument that globalization yeah. has maybe not led to the decline of the nation state. But what about uh, a, a different line of argument, which sees the shift from civic or from ethnic nationalism to civic nationalism? And uh, for example, it's not only true of nations with a dominant group like Germany, which has moved to incorporate the Turks more readily into citizenship, but also the U.S., which ended its national origins in quota immigration scheme in 1965, or Australia with the end of the White Australia policy, etc., and even minorities like the Quebec, Wisconsin, Catalans, who talk about their nationalism as inclusive and civic. Mm. Um, whether it is or not is another question, but the fact that there is this discourse, could it not be said, therefore, that ethnicity is under pressure from the liberal discourses of modernity, and I think Yasmin Soysa, who's going to be speaking here yes. at LSE soon, spoke about this norms, the new norms of universal personhood, and yes. somehow undermining that ethnically based citizenship. Yes. I mean, what what do you make of that? Thesis? Well, I, I think I think uh, ethnicity, uh, the the ethnic and the civic, are to be found combined in all nations. Um, it varies 
from case to case as to which is predominant and it varies from time to time. But in a sense, they, they are both necessary. As people of the modern world, we believe in universal rights. We believe in uh, uh, reason, which uh, again is trans-ethnic. But at the same time, the world is divided. Into, where are there, there is a plurality of cultures in the world, uh, and universality is conceived in very different ways by different uh, collective actors. I mean, French universality is very different from that of American or British. Um, so, in practice, we we combine our belief in the uniqueness of our own community with a belief that uh, universal laws uh, laws must uh, must apply. Um, and so you have this uneasy, t uneasy tension, uh, and it's, I think at certain periods uh, you do get a shift from the ethnic to civic, but equally back, uh, back and forth. In the case of Australia, for example, you get a shift from the white Australian policy because of very specific sociological, economic, and perhaps even military imperatives. The need to populate her perch after the Second World War, they realised Australia was too small and vulnerable. Uh, it needed. Uh, influx of population so they began to break with the white Australian policy there and in due course developed a, a philosophy of multiculturalism but equally now with fears growing of uh, with uh, possible mass migration for all kinds of political or economic reasons from Asia there's a panic gr growing uh, and there's kind of fortress Australia uh, building uh, and, and re-emphasis on the idea of uh, uh, having a uh, of um, emphasising the core values of Australia, which affect you know, British, British Irish, and demanding uh, that uh, migrants recognise these core values before they begin to, as it were, recognise also the value of their own culture. So I think these things will shift, and uh, the. German case is certainly instructive, but it only occurs after unification, mm -hmm. which I think is quite significant. Um, uh, so I, I think I don't believe that um, a discourse in itself will shift things, uh, because in, in uh, a discourse even institutionalized by legal institutions also comes up with. Uh, uh, Raw political pressures of fear of the population if they feel they're being faced with large scale migration, which is a threat to their identities, or, or indeed warfare, or some other uh, some, uh, some other aspect of crisis. Okay, yeah. and um, just sort of looking ahead now, then, uh, I mean, what direction do you see nationalism studies taking, or, or what would you like to see? Uh, well, I suppose there is. I mean, uh, <laughs> There, there are a whole range of things. I mean, uh, obviously, how one defines this, how, how one sees one's own research interest going apart. Yes. <laughs> or how do you, I mean, that, that yes. thing, how do you see Well, I mean, I, I'm, at the moment, I'm working on warfare and national identity because I think that has been a neglected area. I mean, uh, there have been a few people, uh, look at it, like George Moss and, uh, and uh, Anthony Smith, of course, has written about war, Tilly and Mann. But I think uh, it could be incorporated much more into theories of, of, of nations. Um, but I think there are, it's, it's hard to say, there are many areas that really haven't been looked at very closely. 
by, uh, by, by nationalist theories, both in terms of subjects and themes and also areas of the world. So in terms of subjects and themes, the role of the economy, again, is only now, uh, only recently again being uh, re-examined, the, the, the work on economic nationalism uh, by Eric Helenar, Hel Helena and Pickle, and also Leah Greenfeld and her work uh, on the relationship between uh, nationalism and economic modernity. Uh, I think uh, religion too, uh, again, has been relatively neglected and the whole new religion, I mean, the, the recent religion, well, religious revival, again, shows that we need to look much more closely at the relationship between religion, nationality and secularization in the modern world. Uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, areas, most of our theories are still Eurocentric, and we need more work, such as uh, the work you're doing on uh, <laughs> uh, on the so-called immigrant or settler uh, settler societies. See uh, see how far the our, our, our frameworks apply. Uh, recent is an interesting work by uh, by Tonneson and Antlov called "Asian Forms of the Nation," looking at precisely that. Um, but equally, Latin America, again, relatively ignored by theorists of theorists of nationalism. So we need we need work by uh, that. Of course, there is the work on gender. I'm not sure sure that how much of value has been produced yet, but uh, possibly the, uh, possibly it will produce the goods in turn. But again, the anthropology of nations. Uh, Going beyond Billig to look at how national identities actually function in modern societies, I mean that would be a very interesting thing. Yeah, there hasn't been do. a whole lot on that. Has yeah. It? Um, and really, the last question then is is to do with this tradition of LSE uh, of nationalism studies at LSE. Of course, <coughs> ACE and the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism and the Journal Nations and Nationalism both founded, I think, in 1995. Or is ACE older? Uh, I think yes, Asian is older, right. and the, the the journal came later. I think Asian uh, Asian really emerged with the first conference. I think which came just uh, a year after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. Okay. And then so there's this long <coughs> tradition, which of course even goes further back to Gellner. So, I mean, how do you see that? Uh, Going into the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you, know, you are a tradition. Yeah. Like, uh, it depends on uh, it depends on people like you. But it's very difficult to know because uh, I mean, it's quite. Uh, in some ways, it's uh, if you look at the people at LSC who are carrying it on. There's John Brilliant and myself. I mean, obviously, there are other uh, specialists and nationalists at, at the LSC, but. Uh, Really, we are the centre of the program, so it's rather narrowly based. Right. So, in a sense, it has had various. Uh, uh, there, there it has sown its seeds in other colleges uh, around London, so it's it's developing roots elsewhere. So, in your own college and Queen Mary and Kings, uh, we have people looking at nationalism, as well as uh, other other universities in Britain and. Elsewhere, so I don't know how long the tradition uh, will uh, will come at uh, will will continue to LSE. It began, of course, because of Anthony um, and his tea parties. They were the crucial element. 
Oh, well, uh, what about these tea parties? Well, it was really, I think, uh, in the 19, 1980s, there were only about two or three students uh, involved at PhD level. Uh, really, I think, towards the end of the uh, 1980s and then with the Soviet Union, you did get a, a sizable cohort of students emerging, of, of whom you were, I think, one. And at that point, Anthony's tea parties became a major civilizing device, bringing <laughs> all the different nationalities together, so that uh, by learning common manners at table <laughs> and speaking to each other, you formed uh, the a uh, kind of the human basis of uh, of Asian. Because I don't think there were anybody. Uh, there's almost nobody of the same nationality within. Well, that's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, so by. Uh, by creating these bonds, it, it made Asian possible and it enabled it to reproduce itself. And uh, then, uh, of course, the workshop was an important intellectual the PhD workshop. Uh, yes, the PhD workshop was an important intellectual basis, which I didn't have in in, in my day, and that that deepened the these networks and uh, the journal and uh, the bulletin. Uh, then were were further building on on this, so you got layer on, on layer. But uh, certainly, Anthony was the key thing, and uh, hopefully now it's self-generating. But uh, uh, yes, it depends on institutional support and also uh, on uh, on the uh, the products of the, the that golden age uh, actually continuing continuing the heritage. Fluctuating institutional yes. support. That's right, yes. <laughs> As we found out with ACES. Yes. But anyway, John, thanks very much, yes. and uh, that's it. Yes, <laughs> okay, well.